hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. This is Rumble Strip, America Heilman. Pre-COVID, we had a judge here 99% of the time. Everybody would be seeing a judge. Now, of course, the only judge they see is a 54-inch screen. Arraignments and trials and stuff like that done by, you know, in camera, it's bad. It's bad news. It's bad news. That's George Contois. He works as a court officer at the Orange County Courthouse in Chelsea, Vermont. He helps people fill out their paperwork if they need it. He sits in holding cells with defendants. He tells people where the bathroom is. Sort of by definition, courthouses are settings for high drama, and George is famous for keeping things smooth and civilized. But since COVID, he has spent more time at home farming than at the courthouse. Many hearings are still being held remotely, including arraignments, which are sort of ground zero of all criminal cases. An arraignment is the first time that defendants appear in front of a judge. It's where they're informed of their charges and where they enter a plea. And a lot of times, it's the very first time they meet or even see their attorney, if it's a public defender. But since COVID, nobody's seeing much of anyone in person. The judge might be at home, the defense attorney's in his office, the state's attorney is in some other office, and the defendant's on the phone or lodged in jail, as the case may be. And they're all meeting on a scratchy channel called WebEx. It is not optimal, and it does not seem to be going away. So what is lost in justice when human contact is lost? I went down to Chelsea to talk with defense attorney Dan Seaton, who is on my short list of lawyers I'd call if I needed a lawyer, and his associate, Mike Shane. Today's show is a kind of primal scream from the side of the defense. Here's Dan Seaton. It's a person in crisis. We're talking about meeting someone in crisis, in full-blown crisis, because it is the definition of crisis if you're in a holding cell and handcuffed that your life has taken a bad turn. So at that moment, the most important thing is trust. And then the second most important thing is communication and ongoing communication. And um, this only works if you get that human relationship. And I'll tell you that that first encounter when someone is in chains is really key to all this because often they are released and they're immensely grateful when they're released. And like there's a moment I think, where they really are susceptible to changing their lives. I mean, I've seen it so many hundreds, thousands of times. And it's in this arraignment. It's really in that process of like them being at their lowest point in some holding cell, you know, just a toilet in there and a locked steel door. And, and you come in and just, we're, we're, we're solving problems now. Like we're going to dig into this. And just their, their gratitude at that opens up a window, I think, where change can occur. All right, still no luck, Cedric? I'm just transferring Ms. right now, Your Honor. Okay. Hello? Hello? Cedric, doesn't seem like anyone's there. Perhaps she's on mute or something? So at the onset of COVID, necessarily, court system had to scramble to figure out how to do things where normally we'd be in close contact. And what they went to was telephone and then video arraignments. And they were typically done from the jail. And then what grew out of that were these so-called regional arraignments where several counties 
would all sort of tune into one judge's courtroom and they'd handle all the lodgings for those counties through this regionalized arraignment system. One judge is doing the lodging arraignments for several counties and those defendants might be in different jails. So what happens now is when there's someone lodged, you know, an Orange County citizen lodged, uh, my associate Mike will start calling the jail in the morning and sometimes we'll call for two or three hours because there's only one phone at the jail. And of course, all the other lawyers are trying to call their clients too. And eventually you get someone on this bad line, the scratchy line, tries to introduce himself. The person doesn't have a copy of their charges, doesn't really know what's going on. Mike will do his best to explain what's going on, explain the charge, get some information about bail, get some information about where the person might go if they're released, but, but really still have no sense of the person. And then if, if that contact occurs, then at one o'clock, he'll sign in to the assigned court with the assigned judge and then wait in a queue, sometimes for hours, until his client is called for arraignment. And then the arraignment happens and they enter a plea and that's that. But what's lost in that whole process is any ability to really assist the client, any ability to really explain what's going on. And then if they're released, the sheriffs have to drive them home. So I don't know how much cost savings is really occurring. But from our perspective, we're doing a terrible disservice to people charged in Orange County. And who just called in from 802 number ending in 89? Matt, yeah, Scoop just called in. Hello, and who just connected from an 802 number ending at 89? Oh, I just barely get up too. Just barely. Hello? Hello? Hello, who is this? Hi, right. Sorry, one more time. I'm having trouble hearing you. Here's attorney Mike Shane. Uh, so, for example, this Monday, uh, the judge was, I believe, in St. Albans. My client was from Orange and was lodged, I believe, in Southern State. So you could see the logistical issues there. And there were 10 people. I'm here in the office. Uh, I called the prison from my phone, and then I have to appear uh, via WebEx, which is the program that, you, you know, you can see my face and that kind of a thing, and it's on the Internet. Well, the trouble was, I don't call into St. Albans very often, so I didn't have what's called a PIN number. So after being uh, unable to reach my client because the line was busy, I finally get through at 12.45 for a 1 p.m. hearing. And then they explained to me they can't transfer me because I don't have a PIN number, even though I have my attorney number and so forth. And so then I call the main line to try to clear that up. And then they say, well, we can't give you a PIN number over the phone. You could fax us something or write us a letter or this kind of a thing. Well, finally, after trying all afternoon to connect uh, with the client, there were various technical issues. My computer crashed at one point and I had to call. We were just unable to connect. And so the guy was held an additional day and then we had the arraignment the next morning. Well, I had asked the judge to transport the gentleman because I, I was sure I wasn't going to be able to get through again. Well, there was some miscommunication. He wasn't transported. Again, it was a phone hearing. Again, I called the prison and again, I didn't get through. Those are the conditions the state would be seeking. But do you intend? Do you intend I'm to? Sorry. I'm sorry. Get right. Go right ahead, ma'am. Who's Jennifer? Well, uh, the. Give me one second. 
Well, let me just talk about encountering a person in handcuffs in a holding cell in the courthouse. So the way things always worked was they would be transported to the courthouse by sheriff, placed in the holding cell. A lawyer would be there typically within minutes of their arriving, would be able to sit down with them and review the charge and the supporting paperwork, would be able to get really valuable information from the person and make some other assessments too, such as uh, does this person need a competency or mental health check? Is the person making suicidal statements? Should there be some intervention along those lines? A, a lot happened in a short period of time when the lawyer met that defendant. And it, it allowed for uh, that person at their lowest moment to um, come to trust the lawyer because the lawyer made certain representations that subsequently happened. They saw the lawyer making an argument for them in the courtroom. It just allowed a relationship of trust to begin right there and then. But, but if we can't find people, if we don't know where they're living, if we don't know their contact information, they're going to end up missing court hearings. Why are you more likely to know where they are and be able to contact them if that initial arraignment is in person? Because we're having that face-to-face -face communication in a quiet atmosphere where we can exchange information and actually ask questions. It's much harder to get that information the way that we're working now. Because um, you might not have a pencil. Might not have a pencil. So here's the, here's the problem. A lot of times when people are lodged, they don't know where they're going to stay once they're released. Lodged in jail. Lodged in jail. So they're, they're going to be released after the arraignment. The, and we're having the arraignment over WebEx. And I'm unable to give them a business card. They don't know where they're going to live. So I say, hey, make sure you call me when you get out. Tell me where you're living so that I can give you notice of the next hearing. Well, sure, I'll call you, but I don't have your number. Oh, do you have a pen? No, I don't have a pen. Okay, well, what I need you to do is Google Seedon and Erickson when you get out. Call and, uh, and, and leave, leave a message with your mailing address and we'll mail you notice. But that doesn't happen uh, often. And so we have the next event in the case uh, and, and the defendant's not there. The judge asks me, well, did you get him notice? Well, no, judge, I, I, I couldn't give him, give him notice. Uh, and so there's no warranted issues. And so because the judge isn't comf comfortable issuing a warrant when there's, when there's been no notice. And so they just sort of linger. Uh, we don't know where they are. They don't know where we are. They don't know who their attorney is. I don't know where they live. It's, it's absurd. You know, in-person arraignment, very often the person's family or their people will be there. And so you can pop out and find them and say, is there someone who can give him a ride to residential rehab right now? Because if we can get him to residential rehab right now, that's an alternative to remaining in jail. And then, or does anyone have $200? Because we, we need $200, right, to secure his release. Or, you know, he needs to stay with someone. So who are some people? Who are some people I can call right now? And they'll name a few people and you just go make some phone calls. And you're like, okay, your aunt's neighbor will let you stay with her because you used to shovel her roof. And you good with that? Yes. All right, you'll go there. Yes. All right, I have that address. You're going to go there. We did that all the time. Being able to get information about the person, too, are, you know, they don't always share with you, and sometimes their family will. 25% of the cases we resolve right there. We, the guy would go to diversion uh, or say, hey, look, I can get my license back in this amount of time. Uh, there's been a misunderstanding. Uh, here's the 
here's my wife. She can explain it to you. And, and 25% of the cases don't make it out of the courthouse. And, and, and we could solve problems right there, which is really what we like to do. Well, the other thing that I wonder is this, this um, inefficiency that is meant to be more efficient, but in fact ends up being profoundly time-consuming for everybody. It also sounds expensive. Exactly. And for some reason, they think that this saves money, right? Because we don't have to pay the sheriffs to transport people to the courthouse. But that's just one cost. My time's not quantified hourly. The state's attorney's time is not quantified hourly. But there's only so much time in the day. So the time that we spend on hold waiting to do a single arraignment is time that I can't talk to clients and help solve problems, that I can't file motions. That's time that the state's attorney can't look at search warrants, can't go out there and fight crime like they do. The, tr- the state troopers, when they transport these people to prison, they have to wait because if the judge decides to release them, they have to transport them anyway back to the county that they went to. And that's the vast majority of cases. So the vast majority of cases, people are still being transported. They're just being transported after a, a very diminished skeleton of a hearing uh, where they don't get to see their attorney. And so I don't know where the savings comes from. And maybe we're not saving any money at all. Again, here's Sheriff George Contois. If you're, if you're in a situation where it's a serious crime, one of the things you're worried about is whether or not you're going to be incarcerated. And so when your attorney is sitting right there, right next to you, the, the two of you, pre-COVID, and they, they have a communication that you don't have COVID now. It, it's, not, it's not the same. I mean, the person isn't there. You're talking into a piece of machinery. And sometimes a lot of people don't understand the verbiage that the attorneys are using or the judge is, is talking about. They'll, they'll, the judge will say, well, you understand that. Oh, yeah, yeah, I understand, I understand. You know, they don't understand. And afterwards, I, th- I think it leaves you, uh, you know, what happened? What happened to me? So I don't get to see the person I'm speaking with on the other end of the line. And in this case, again, it took all morning to get through to the prison. I finally got through to my client, explained things to him as best I could. Uh, and we were ready for arraignment. I logged on to WebEx and saw that there were attorneys from all over the state logged on. I assumed it was going to be a long time. They bring uh, a gentleman forward. Again, I can't see his face because he's in full protective equipment because of COVID. So you can't see the face of the client even when they're on WebEx because they have masks on. And then they called him by a name that wasn't the name of my client. And so I said, well, look, I have 10 minutes because it's not my guy. I'm gonna try to get some other work done. I muted the WebEx and I went about working. Come to find out, they went through the whole arraignment, arraigned him on all these charges, and it turned out it was my client. And these weren't his charges. They had the wrong guy entirely. And we had to circle back you know, an hour or so later and, and do the arraignment when, when uh, I was aware that, it, that my client was on, was on the WebEx. And again, it's another one of those days where from 10.30 to 3.30, I'm dealing with one misdemeanor arraignment for somebody who's been arrested and lodged, who's going to be released. I can't give them a card. I can't build a relationship. And I hope I don't lose them. I hope that they get a hold of me when they get out. But it's just a hope. So for a year, we happily went along with this um, because obviously transporting people and meeting in public and et cetera became problematic. But it appears now that we're operating under some semi-permanent emergency rule. And um, that's never good to operate under permanent emergency rules, right? But that appears to be exactly what we're doing. Um, And although the governor, the executive branch, has said that the pandemic emergency has ended, I don't think the judicial branch agrees. I believe these are the rules 
they'd like to make permanent for reasons of perceived judicial efficiency. My personal theory is this. The biggest problem we have in Vermont is when people in Vermont government go to national conferences and pick up bad habits from other states like Texas and Alabama, who are all in on video arraignments, like people with crappy justice systems, and then bring these ideas back to Vermont, because then they don't have to pay to actually bring people to the courthouse. They can just do it by video. No one will persuade me that that's a better way to do justice. I got a hold of her and told her that she needed to call in today. But she told me because she's at the Econo Lodge, she don't have a long distance. She can't call in. What is this relationship between a defense attorney and a client? I mean, that's I think that that is not intuitive for a lot of people. You know, you don't understand how inaccessible like state government can be to people with not much education or, or you know, combination of not much education and mental health issues and Uh, or just sort of rural people are intimidated by, like, going to Montpelier. So being able to access the bureaucracy on behalf of clients, too, and just sort of give them a nudge in the right direction helps a lot. And um, people whose lives are are going well and running optimally don't typically run afoul of the criminal law. It's people dealing with life situations who do. So, yes, very often, let's just say there's an assault. So there's an assault alleged in some context. But then when you dig a little deeper, it's because they only have one person in the family with a driver's license and she has to work that night. And there's just all this stress, all this background stress. Uh, They just can't ever get it right. So people end up driving DLS and picking up fines and then they're bickering and arguing about about that. So sometimes you can untangle that knot. Like you can just dig in, figure out how many fines are owed, help them get the license back or help them find a better housing situation. You know, I'm not a social worker, well, but... Well, that's what I was about to say. I felt like right. we were sort of creeping toward... But since there is no social worker who fulfills this function, we find ourselves doing it. And I think that's true of everyone in the state who does this job. Uh, to some level and to some degree, yes, because there's no one else to do it. And you know that's what's going to really help them. Yeah. So you give them a little nudge, you give them phone numbers, you make a couple phone calls, you you figure things out for them. And then part and parcel of resolving the criminal case, they're in a little better shape. Courtrooms are built a certain way. There's a bit of theater to it, but that theater is necessary. It conveys authority. It conveys that people put effort into this, that they care, that there's a, a professionalism to it. You know, I don't wear a suit because they're comfortable. I wear a suit because people want their lawyers to wear a suit. When they come to court, they want to understand that the lawyer uh, takes it seriously, that he bothered to get dressed in the morning and have a haircut and these kinds of things. And you lose all of that over the phone. You lose the sheriff. We have a sheriff here, great, great sheriff, George. He introduces himself. He's very kind. He calms people down. We, you know, we don't have violence in this court. We've never had violence in this court. And that's for a reason is because the whole courtroom is built around calming people down, making them understand that we care, that we're professionals. Uh, We understand that this is a difficult time, but we'll get through it. Uh, None of that comes through over the phone. We are at the stage where I can sign a diversion referral, whether we would need to do the arraignment on the amended charge before I can do that. 
None of these changes have improved the function of the Orange County Court. Uh, not electronic filing, not virtual justice, none of it. I have been at this long enough that I've seen people get into trouble and I've seen people get themselves out of trouble. I've seen people, I've seen the light bulb go off where people are like walked into that courtroom in handcuffs and you could just see them saying, this is the last time this is ever gonna happen, right? What it does, I think, when it works right, is it has a, a, an effect of clarifying the mind and setting up an important and somber process of applying the law to people and at the same time providing them due process and respect for their rights as citizens. It, it's essential work. And when it goes right, it can really change people's lives. That was Dan Seden and Mike Shane of Seden and Erickson in Chelsea, Vermont. Also, Sheriff George Contoys. If you have a comment on the show, I would love to hear it. Just go to the show page at rumblestripvermont.com and you'll find a comment box at the bottom of the page. And if you liked this show, consider sharing it on your social media channels. That helps new listeners find the show. This show would not have happened without my friend Kelly Green, who is also a passionate and often angry lawyer. The music for the show is by my friend Brian Clark. I have tote bags for sale now. So if you if you go to the website, uh, again, it's rumblestripvermont.com, and you go to the merch page, you'll see um, T-shirts and now tote bags. Rumblestrip is a proud member of Hub and Spoke, a collective of independent podcasters from around the country. This week I'm recommending Subtitle, a show about our obsessions with language produced by Patrick Cox and Kavita Pillay. Their latest show is about fortune cookies. Who writes them? Why are they sometimes so weird and ominous? You can find Subtitle at subtitlepod.com or at hubspokeaudio.org. This is Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening.